0: Safety Third is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. What's the scariest thing I've ever done? A couple of years ago,
1: uh, I think our second kid, Wiley, had just been born, and I was in, like, the clutches of complete sleep deprivation. And I take the bus to work, and I'm, like, walking from the bus stop to the office. You know, I'm basically like a middle-aged, professional-looking guy going to work,
0: so, the other day, as we were prepping for this episode, Elizabeth and I got to talking with our boss, Hall, about risk.
1: Even though, like, I'm exhausted, like, there's these, like, moments where sometimes you'll be, like, bummed, sometimes you'll be, like, elated for no apparent reason, because it's, like, not fun, but apparently you're, like, in a good mood about it. And I've got my headphones in, and I've and I've got this song and it just like comes to this point where the music just sort of kind of like has a big build and like all of a sudden i just find that i'm like moving and i was like mm, yeah and i'm dancing and i realize i'm doing it in front of this like totally packed bus stop and it was this like this like sort of light bulb went off in my head and i was like what if i were a superhero what superpower i'd be and i was like dancing it would definitely <laughs> be dancing
2: Fitz was struck by this image of a superhero alter ego. He called him the Dancing Man.
1: The idea would be that I would get a a nice slender gray suit with a black tie and a nice red pair of sneakers and maybe my crazy hair, too. And, like, I'd go to busy intersections or crowded bus stops. Then, like, all of a sudden I'd be, like, in this, like, explosion of dance. And for a moment (laughs) there would be joy. (laughs) thought about this for like six or seven months and then all of a sudden I was like I'm doing it it's like 5:30 in December at a you know bus stop with like 20 people 25 people and I'm like looking at my phone and I've got the whole timing and I'm like kind of like no it's like once this bus turns this corner a block and a half away I probably have three minutes to pull this whole <laughs> thing off So I've got a routine. I've known my moves. I've been practicing every night for like the last 10 days after the kids go to bed. And the bus turns the corner. And it's just this moment of like, do you commit to this thing? And of all the things in the mountains that I've done, you know, climbs without ropes or mistakes I've made where it's like almost cost me my life. That moment of seeing that bus turn and committing to this idea, this totally silly wonderful idea it felt how I imagine base jumping must be where you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you just leap and you sort of envision the best possible outcome of something that is patently ridiculous at first glance and I see the bus turn and I kind of like take three deep breaths You know, it's like I can feel this bass drum. Boom, boom, boom. And all of a sudden, I'm, like, dancing in the middle of the street. And it's terrifying. It just feels like there is a spotlight burning down on you while this is all occurring. And you're like, how long can I sustain this? (laughs) (laughs) So the bus pulls up. I get on. And, like, two blocks later, I, like, get off and walk back. It was, like, one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. What you're doing is you're testing the edges of boundaries And that very act of walking up to a boundary, a space where if you take one more step, you're fully committed, is this really wonderful but horribly frightening thing you can do in life. And for me, the actual feeling, like the actual physical reaction that happened in my body felt the same way of doing something ridiculously dangerous physically, except it was just done creatively.
0: The pursuit of creative risk can lead us to some crazy, unexpected places. Today, we talk with someone very familiar with pushing boundaries. Chris McNamara made a career for himself doing high-risk sports like big wall climbing and base jumping. And in the process, he came to a powerful conclusion.
3: I believe that risky activities are really useful and essential for self-discovery, but at a certain point, they need to be channeled into something else, and you can't just follow them to their end because often that end is uh, is death.
0: We're breaking down what led Chris to this belief and where it has led him to today. I'm Patty O'Connell,
2: and I'm Elizabeth Nakano.
0: Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. Okay, a pretty significant part of your existence has been spent hanging thousands of feet off of the ground, being completely terrified on a terrifying wall, Pooping in a bag and then carrying that poop bag with you upward <laughs> while being terrified, then well, somehow getting I, down from that terrifying wall with said poop bag. Yep. So I have one question for you. <laughs> yeah. Why do you not like to have fun, Chris?
2: <laughs> Thus began our interview with Chris.
0: Okay, stop with your face and your tone of voice, your judgmental tone of voice. First of all, <laughs> you and I are both super weird, so it's a totally great way to enter into this interview. And second, Chris has spent literally years of his life climbing El Cap. That is crazy, because what that really means is that he's had his deuce on his back for years of his life, years, hundreds of days, probably.
2: Seriously, Patty. <laughs> That's your
0: face right now.
2: I. I just can't believe that that's the first thing you it's thought that, about when you heard first, that. the first, but
0: I thought about it the most. Great. <laughs>
2: well, it's up there. And I mean, I thought about the fact that Chris was able yeah. to spend that much time on LCAP because he started super right. young. Yeah. He was 15. That's crazy.
0: Yes. It, you're right. It is. That is totally nuts. Anyway. If any of you are thinking Chris landed on this belief because he was some adrenaline junkie kid who had one too many brushes with death, you'd be totally wrong. Living out some action hero fantasy was the last thing on his mind.
3: This all started with reading way too many Zen Buddhism books. (laughs) It all started from that spot and uh, reading the Tao Te Ching, listening to every like book on tape on Zen and, and Buddhism possible And so I was kind of looking for these really meaningful experiences early. It was was based on just trying to figure out, well, what's the point of this all? Yeah. Now, you don't have to climb a wall to have a meaningful experience, but it's certainly a very easy way to kind of come up with like a big giant challenge that you then have to overcome and that then kind of just, you know, stays with you rather than, oh, I just put in another three hours of TV.
0: I don't understand how anything about climbing a big-ass wall is easy. But I'm not Chris, and I'm definitely not a climber, so what the hell do I know? But that's not the point. The point is, Chris was hungry for these sorts of experiences. And so when he was offered the chance to climb El Cap, he took it.
2: Chris's El Cap mentor was the owner of a climbing gym. Chris invested in the gym when he was 15 years old. He put in five grand. He saved the money from his job serving nachos at Little League baseball games. And one of the perks of that investment was the trip to El Cap.
0: How in the hell a 15-year-old kid earns 5,000 bucks slinging nachos? I will never understand. Unle- <laughs> unless, unless that cheese is actually liquid gold. And instead of jalapenos, you are sprinkling diamonds on top of that sucker. Okay? Like... At 15, I was contemplating my navel. I don't understand how Chris did any of this.
2: Well, if it makes you feel any better, Chris says that climb didn't go well.
0: Of course it didn't. Because climbing is terrible. But, because it lacks any opportunity but, to have any fun or smile at all. <laughs>
2: it didn't matter. He was hooked on big wall climbing.
0: And that obsession introduced him to his next one. So if you
3: climb L Cap enough, base jumpers just fly over you. And um just that like is you were terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 actually pretty cool. Because um, bodies don't fly through the air. They really just like tear the air apart and it's it's this really oh violent, God. loud but it's it's actually something that base jumpers and skydivers never experience because there's never a point where they're fixed um, you know, in the middle unless they were in a hot air balloon and you skydive by them. But um I saw them going over me. And I looked at that and said, that just is totally insane. Why would anyone ever do that? It, which is the way it was
0: for a decade.
2: But gradually that changed. And Chris started to get curious about bass jumping.
0: Really quick. For those of you who don't know what bass jumping is, it's this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's kind of like that. But BASE is actually an acronym. It means bridge, antenna, span, earth. So BASE jumping is when you parachute or wingsuit fly from one of those things. And usually the introduction to BASE is skydiving. But Chris found a way around that.
3: I was just in circles enough that I finally found that person who was like, you don't actually have to um, skydive 200 times which is a big commitment to put in before base jumping. I'll let you do your first base jump with no skydives. What? And so so I got this opportunity to climb a 500-foot-tall um, power tower in the Central Valley with zero skydives and, and jump off of it. And I did, and everything went great. And I thought, yeah, that was pretty cool, but it's sort of just as crazy as I thought. It's it's that kind of, hey, y'all, watch this fun, where it's it's not smart it's not sustainable.
0: Right. But then,
3: um, this was about 2004. I saw these videos of people flying the precursors to wingsuits in Norway, where they jump off these cliffs and fly these kind of homemade suits through the canyons. So no longer was it jumping off something, watching the ground come at it, come up at you and, and opening a parachute just before that happened it suddenly was like, oh, this is human flight. This is arguably the closest humans can get to flying without having a contraption, like a uh, hang glider or an airplane. And so I was like, okay, that's something I can get behind. And then I just turned my obsession to that.
0: So not only were you kind of hooked by the actual event, but maybe like putting your stamp on history was also a big part of it.
3: Yeah, and it was less... um, A stamp on history than creativity for people with no art skills. If you know you can't play music or you can't draw and your writing's only so-so, kind of what's left is experiences and being creative about what type of human experiences have never been done. And so with climbing, that manifests in like a first ascent. Which climb has never been done? And that becomes a creative thing. You have to look at a cliff and, wow, has anyone climbed it? Oh, no one has. Why haven't they? Okay, Well, it looks good. Like, what would be the best way to climb it? And so it's a very kind of creative process to try to figure that all out. And with base jumping, it's the same thing where I knew most of the cliffs in the world hadn't been jumped off of. Most of the easy cliffs hadn't. And so it's like, okay, how do I get to the top of them? What are all the logistics involved? And then once you're standing up there, is it safe? Is this something I can actually pull off? That whole process is just, it's about as good as it gets.
0: Hey, Rage Kitty, have you seen any of Chris's wingsuit footage? I haven't. Okay. Well, I watched some. There's there's this one that I just cannot get out of my head. I want to see. Okay. And play. And here we go. Jump. Okay. So he, Chris is following behind this woman and she jumps and all you see is earth and she looks like a pinprick and okay she's about to buzz the rock wall right now she's getting i don't know an an inch away or something okay she flies past the wall, and then chris oh my god he's right next to the wall he's right next to the wall he's right next to the wall (laughs) oh my god this is insane dude do you see what i mean
2: oh man you know for a while i thought it would be fun to learn to base jump yeah and Mm. Then I did some research and uh-huh. it scared me away.
0: Okay, why? What did you f- okay. What did you find? Do I want to know? I don't want to know. Do okay, so know?
2: well for example, you're flying between 120 and 140 miles an hour, which you what? know it sounds exhilarating but basically means that if you're in a kind collision, of. you're going to die. Right Uh, In wingsuit base jumping, which is what Chris is doing, you're basically doing something called proximity flying, where you're tracking very Uh quickly along the faces and ridges of mountains. And I do not trust my depth perception at that speed (laughs) and short distance. It just sounds like way too near deathy for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Too deathy. Yes, it does sound too deathy. Of course, none of this stopped Chris. His progression looked a little like this. In 2004, he did his first 500-foot jump.
2: Then he did 100 or so bridge jumps in Idaho.
0: Then 30 to 50 skydives with a wingsuit on.
2: And then Chris started base jumping with a wingsuit.
0: And for Chris, once again, the appeal of all this time and effort wasn't the adrenaline high. He says for him, the appeal was actually self-discovery.
3: Something that you think is impossible and that is only kind of reserved for other people somewhere out there is something that you can totally figure out and do. And so you can take something as unlikely and as impossible as stepping off a cliff with a wingsuit and actually become fairly proficient at it. It's kind of this ongoing reaffirmation that you are in control of these amazing experiences. I can envision something and maybe it won't happen right away, or maybe the first five things won't happen perfectly. But There's this path to taking something that seemed totally impossible and making it a reality.
2: For Chris, the self-discovery stuff came with a pretty sweet side benefit.
3: Where can I go? What gullies can I dive into? What terrain can I fly over? It becomes a, a kind of a creative thing where you're finding terrain to fly over, and because you're going 100 miles an hour, even though you're just really falling with a ton of forward speed, uh, it feels
0: like you're flying. Basically living out every, like, childhood superhero fantasy ever.
3: Yeah, and it's I think anyone who sees one of those videos on YouTube for the first time kind of gets it, which is, oh, this is flying. You know, a paraglider or a hang glider is cool, but I don't think people generally have those dreams of, oh, there I am with a giant aluminum bar in front of me, and I'm pushing it to the left or pushing it to the right. No, they, they think about, I take my arms, I spread them, and suddenly I'm flying through space.
0: Right. You want to look like Superman.
3: Exactly. And that's kind of what it feels like.
0: In total, Chris participated in the sport for three years. But in that time, with the mentorship of some of Wingsuit's pioneers, Chris quickly became one of the best in the world. In his career, he jumped 350 times. These were base and skydives. And 70 of the 350 jumps were wingsuit flights. When he was at the top of his game, he went to Baffin Island. And that is when everything changed.
2: We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor.
3: Yeah, so Baffin Island, a friend of mine, Shane McConkey, described it as 100 Yosemites. And I was like, that is such an overstatement. Maybe it's three Yosemites. But I showed up there and it was 100 Yosemites. At least it felt that way. It just seems infinite how many rocks there are on the scale of El Capitan. And some of them are literally the size of half dome on top of El Capitan, if they were to be stacked.
0: Okay, time out. Before we go any further, I have a confession to make. Yeah. During our conversation, aside from words like Cap, like pretty much everything he was talking about, I didn't understand. So when Chris would mention climbing thingies... Climbing I thingies. just Yes, climbing thingies. When he'd talk about them, I would just say like, oh, yeah, totally, and hope that he didn't get hip to the fact that I had like pretty much no idea what he was talking about. It should be known that I am not a climber, mostly because... Every time I've climbed, I have always waited for the fun to start. And guess what? The fun actually never freaking starts. Get to the
2: point, Patty. Okay. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Right. So once we got off the phone with Chris, I decided to give myself this like crash course in climbing thingies. So I called our friend and our boss. Oh, no. Fitzcahal.
1: What's up, Patty? What is a
0: half dumb? You mean like the thing in Yosemite? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're a climber, so can you? Have, what is the hell is that? And okay, I'm I'm hanging up, dude. Bye. Where's the other half of the deal? So that's what it's like to work with Fitz. You
2: know, you could have asked me.
0: I didn't have to ask you. I replaced you with the Google machine because it doesn't yell at me or judge me. Touche. And, and, <laughs> and also, the Google machine doesn't try to pass off Crocs as acceptable footwear for an adult human male. Fitz, I am speaking directly to you. So what the Google machine told me is Half Dome is a 2,000 foot wall and El Cap is a 3,000 foot wall. Those numbers are terrifying. Those walls are terrifyingly enormous. Okay, back to Chris. Hopefully now you humans who are non-climbers will understand what he's talking about when he describes Baffin Island. Think of it as looking exactly like Yosemite Valley, only much bigger, and it violently erupts out of the frozen ocean. Oh, also, there are polar bears there.
3: There just isn't probably a higher concentration of vertical and overhanging big walls in the world than Baffin Island and the Sam Ford Fjord, specifically, wow. which is where we were. And so it was, you know, the ultimate blank canvas there'd been maybe three base jumping trips there and they ticked off some of the big ones, but no one had really, um, wingsuit flown there much. So what that meant was anything, I mean, it was almost overwhelming. Like no one's jumped off any of this stuff with a wingsuit. So not only could you be the first person to step off something, but all these different lines, you know, yeah, that's the obvious spot to jump off of. But what if you jumped off over there and went down that gully and, so it was it was
0: amazing. Chris was on Baffin Island to shoot a documentary.
2: And one of the crew members saw and fell in love with the footage from one of Chris's jumps.
0: So he asked Chris if he could fly behind him on his next jump. So we went right back up.
3: He jumped um, last so that he could capture the footage. And I flew, landed, turned around and didn't see him anywhere. And then, you know, realized he... would never gotten the wingsuit to fly and, it, and it had, you know, hit the ground before the wingsuit ever started going or the parachute opened. And so that moment was, you know, super hard and hard for the whole group. And then kind of made me rethink what's the point of something, whether it's creative, whether it gives you adrenaline, what's the point of it if it actually might kill you, which up until that, and I knew it was kind of a possibility, but it was kind of this abstract possibility and suddenly it was very real, and it made me start to rethink. Once you know something can kill you and kill you pretty quick and easily, it totally changes how you, how you feel about it.
0: Chris was seriously affected by the Baffin Island incident. It was several months before he jumped again, but even then, he scaled things back dramatically. He was only flying intermittently.
2: But he had one goal left. He wanted to wingsuit into the Grand Canyon. No one had done it before. He wanted to be the first. And after a year of thinking about it, he headed to Arizona.
3: So there's been a lot of jumps where I probably came pretty close to dying. But on that one, I came close to dying twice. I don't know why. I just felt like, you know what? This is probably worth doing. But kind of had lost all my mojo at that moment for that sport. And so, you know, standing up there. Why? Just I was seeing more and more friends die. And um, at the same time, the experience had become pretty normal. And so I could sort of imagine what every jump would be like. Before it happened, and once that happens, it's uh-huh. it's no longer really as creative an endeavor. Yeah. So you combine not as exciting with all your friends are dying that makes it pretty clear to me. Like, even though this is one of the coolest sports ever, it's so fun to show YouTube videos to your friends. Right. It's just not worth it. Yeah. You know, if, if I were to keep pursuing it, I'd basically be an adrenaline junkie, which is not what I ever set out to be. I was more of like a creative junkie, you know, wanted to do something that felt really engaging, not doing things just because they gave you adrenaline. And so wanted to pass, but ended up there kind of at the edge anyway. Um and uh and then did it.
0: Chris wasn't feeling a hundred percent when he jumped. He was super tired. The day before, he'd hiked for 12 hours, and he gained something like 4,000 feet. But there he is. He's at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and the sandstorm is approaching, and his window to fly is closing, and it's this major goal, his last one. It's like this now or never moment. So he leapt. But because he was so tired, he was only flying at about 80% of normal glide. He miscalculated his flight. He almost struck the ground, this overhanging cliff, as he was flying.
2: That was near-death number one.
0: Because he didn't fly like he thought, when he opened his chute, Chris was way off the mark of his safe landing spot. So rather than land in a boulder field, Chris thought the river was the safer option.
2: That was near-death number two.
3: Soon after I landed in the river, though, I realized all the nylon of the parachute and your wingsuit filled with water and and then you're basically becoming one of those kind of drag anchors that boats use in the middle of the ocean to keep them in one spot except it's you or the anchor getting sucked down and so my god barely barely didn't drown and uh it was pretty clear after that there were no big things left that i wanted to do and and it certainly wasn't worth dying for you know almost nothing is
0: so how, how- many flights go really well on average and I guess when i say, when I say really well for for wingsuit flying, I mean how many times are you not scared that you're gonna die
3: um well, most of them Okay. but the but the problem is you just don't get a lot of feedback that you almost died in the sense that say you're big wave surfing um you start with three foot waves and then you go to fifteen now you're at thirty. You know, that whole process, you are getting held down. You're getting held down progressively longer. You're having some times where you get held down way longer than you thought was possible. Or say, you know, rock climbing. Say you were free soloing. You would start up, but pretty quickly you'd start getting feedback that says, I'm over my head. I need to go back down. But base jumping is literally the easiest thing to do. All you have to do is take one step and you're Um, and so it's so easy to get over your head fast. And then let's say you do everything wrong on a jump and you have some super close call. Generally that close call, it involves like a quarter second of being like, Oh, I'm about to die. Oh, I'm fine. I'm actually totally fine. There, there isn't that like being held down on a wave or, you know, that rock climbing where you might just be like, terrified and then decide to repel or have to down climb there's just very little feedback that tells you until it's too late that you're you're cutting it too thin
0: after the grand canyon chris walked away from wingsuit flying
2: was there any fear or anxiety about moving away from these activities that had featured so largely in in your life
3: Oh yeah, there there was a huge fear that once I gave up base there wouldn't be something nearly as cool to replace it. And I've seen a lot of friends grapple with that where it's a pretty cool identity to be a base jumper. It's sort of a modern-day superhero in a sense where you get to show someone in a bar like, "Hey, this is what I did last weekend." It's it's pretty compelling stuff. So giving it up was hard. I think I had an easier time than most though because a, I'd already gone through this big wall evolution of being like, I found something that I thought I would spend the rest of my life doing. And then it changed. I no longer wanted to spend my whole life climbing big walls. And then I found base. And so I knew that you could give up something as long as you kind of stayed true to kind of your principles and kind of your, your life's trajectory. If you gave it their space out there, something would fill it that could maybe even Cooler.
0: Chris was still hung up on the idea of climbing mountains and not walking down them. But without a safe way to do that, he switched his focus. He tried paragliding for a little bit. He got into what he describes as medium wave surfing. He took up dirt biking for a short term. As Chris tried to figure out what to do with the rest of his life, he looked towards some of his heroes.
3: You know, the Yvonne Chenards, the Tom Frost, Royal Robbins, all of my kind of climbing heroes growing up, and you see how they took this passion for El Cap and then transformed it into all these other passions. It just makes you go, well, why would I want to do things any differently than that?
2: What really grabbed his attention and spoke to his artistry was reshaping his community.
0: Chris wants to reshape. South Lake Tahoe. He wants to turn it into a carbon-free town and a must-visit outdoor mecca for climbers and for boaters and skiers and mountain bikers. Part of his plan includes building a new single-track mountain bike trail around Lake Tahoe that could be completed in a multi-day trip.
2: Chris has been able to take on these new challenges thanks in part to what he learned from BASE.
3: Even though BASE jumping and starting a business don't necessarily seem in the exact same camp. There is a lot of uncertainty in both. And there's a lot of realizing that really challenging things require a lot of work and can be hard and be doubtful at points whether it's going to work, but that if you trust in the bigger vision and actually put the time in and then have the right people to guide you, that you can do anything for the most part. You know, I'm working on projects now that are going to take you know, five to 20 years, like things aren't going to happen overnight. And that's great. That means I get to kind of enjoy these things for that long and, uh, and know they won't feel quite as exciting or look as good on YouTube. But the, you know, the overall happiness is much, much higher.
0: When it comes to outdoor pursuits, especially dangerous ones, I'm always struck by this one question. I often wonder how we walk the path of pursuing what makes us us without being swallowed by it. Like, you know, I love skiing, right? I love it. Right.
2: Right. I I think everyone knows how much you love skiing.
0: Okay. So here's the deal. You've got this thing, right? And it delivers this wonderful feeling, not just an endorphin release, but this moment of extreme connection to the mountains, to the snow, to everything and everyone. And I ski because of that. And I think those moments ultimately make me a better person. But I often wonder about that strange, thin gray line between being self-full and being selfish.
3: Well, in my opinion, it's actually pretty simple because the only reason you ever jump off a cliff with a wingsuit is because it gives you this amazing feeling. And there's a period where it keeps delivering on that. And same with rock climbing. The only reason why you climb El Capitan is it just gives you this otherworldly feeling of, I never knew this was possible. And this is amazing. But at a certain point with everything in that world I've done, that just starts to ebb a little. And as soon as it does, deep down, you kind of know this is no longer what it once was. And that I now need to deal with that. I now need to either continue doing something that doesn't give me as much pleasure or I need to figure out a new way to approach it or I need to transition into something else. Um, And that's the hard part. The easy part, I think, is recognizing this no longer delivers what it once did. And I know a lot of base jumpers who are in that position of, I know my friends have died. I know this is no longer as exciting as it once was like they know that but the much harder thing is what do I do now right and so that's what I've tried to communicate as much as I can is that we all know there is a moment where you're kind of on the fence of like which direction do I go and that you just have to believe that if you're able to find something as incredible as jumping off a cliff with a wingsuit that you never thought was possible. That there very likely and almost certainly are other things that you don't think are possible today, that are out there. Doing things just for yourself, I found, just kind of hits a wall at a certain point, and uh, and finding ways to kind of channel that passion into something else is what it's all about.
0: You've been listening to Safety Third, a production of Duct Tape, then Beer. Chris McNamara was our guest today. Chris, thank you so much. If you like today's show and want to learn a little more about Chris and see photos, follow us on the old Instagram. That's at Third underscore podcast. You can leave comments and questions on our website, safetythirdpodcast.com. We'll also put a link to the video that we watched there. Spread the word. Good ideas need advocates. Oh, and as for the adventures of the Dancing Man, well, apparently that superhero, super groovy dance was actually filmed, but it has never seen the light of day. So Fitz's personal email is Fitz. He's going to kill at, you. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The world needs a Dancing Man, Rage Kitty. Friends out there, find Fitz on the internet. Keep the comments coming. We need to get that footage. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Mario Quintana edited this episode. Additional production help from Phil Corbett. He produces the podcast Van Sounds. Music by my brother, my sweet, sweet brother, Brendan O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cajal is our creative director and the dancing man. Becca Cajal is our executive producer. I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. All right, friends, my dudes and my dudettes. Until next time, keep it tight. Keep it loose, and remember, safety third.